you all can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, the parable of the rich fool. And I'm going to read three verses from a psalm as we open this. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 7. What, this, um, what Jesus talks about is not a new thing. It's an old thing. It's something that, that, that's always with us, and it's a problem that we always have. The problem of, um, even if we do love God, we end up sometimes loving other things a whole lot more. In Psalm 39, verses 4 through 7, this is what David wrote. He said, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Saying, let, help me really to, to get that, to really understand how short my life is. So I can prioritize what I do with the time I have. You've made my days a mere hand's breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes about like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 7. Where is our hope? And this is a difficult subject because we know what the, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what you're supposed to say. Of course, your hope is in Jesus. Great. But we can know things, but not let them penetrate down into our hearts and into our minds. And that's what this parable is pushing at us to think about today. Where actually is our hope? We'll be in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. And we'll go through the parable and then talk about what it means for our life. The parable came about not because Jesus wanted to tell it, but in Luke chapter 12, starting verse 13, the parable comes about because some guy just shouts a question to him. That's it. Ever since chapter 11, Jesus has been teaching to a big crowd and thousands of people are there. More and more keep gathering. And at one point, at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus takes a break from public teaching and he's having like a quiet word with his disciples while thousands of people are just milling around. So he's talking to his disciples here. People are waiting for him to begin speaking. And in the middle of that, someone shouts this on our screen in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And we don't have the recording of this. YouTube took it down because it violated the content guidelines. So you don't know what the guy, what his tone of voice is. Is it a real question? Is it an honest question? Or is it just, some, is it just a heckler yelling something as a joke? We don't know, but it doesn't matter because Jesus takes the question, whatever its intention was, and he, he uses it to give a lesson to the crowd and to us. But the guy's question is so strange because Jesus has just talked about so many really important things that, that we need to know for our life. Jesus has just talked, criticized in the end of chapter 11 and going through chapter 12. He criticized legalism and just making things pretty on the outside while not actually changing your heart. He criticized that. 
He criticized the Pharisees and the scribes because they're, they're separating people from God by their false teaching. He told them how they're, they're crushing people's hopes. And he's telling this to them publicly, so it's really embarrassing. They're crushing people's hopes with, with false, false teaching. He talked about how they build, they build monuments to prophets and they honor these heroes of the past who would disagree with everything they actually teach. And he told them in a really frightening um, um, condemnation, he said in um, Luke 11, at the end of the chapter, he said in verse 50, uh, 52, woe to the experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and have hindered those who are entering. So this is all deep, important stuff. And right after he finishes this really important stuff, the guy shouts out this question. It's kind of out of place. Makes you, makes you, want, to look at, makes you want to look at the person and say, you know, really? After everything I've just been talking about, you decide to shout that question to me? Of all the things he could have said in response to this good, important stuff that Jesus is saying, that's what the guy asks. Even Jesus couldn't hold the attention of people whose God was something else. You know, supernatural blindness is real, where you think you love God, but you're really loving something else, and you don't even see that that's you. When we read the parables, we always think about it being other people, but sometimes it's us. And after Jesus spoke about all of that, all the guy wants to know is, for whatever reason, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Can you imagine of all the things you could ask Jesus if he were teaching? So if Jesus came up here and taught, of all the things you could ask him, would you ask him that? But that's what this guy did. And Jesus responds, I think, kind of like the, the face on the screen. He says in verse 14, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Basically saying, What's that have to do with anything? With anything I've been saying? But then he uses the strange question to teach us a lesson that we can still learn today. In verse 15, he said, Then he said to them, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. And here's this really important statement. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Your translation might say, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. But it's getting at the same thing. There's, there's a thirst for more. There's a thirst, you're not happy with what you have and you want more. Maybe you want more money, maybe you just want more stuff, but you, which is why covetousness might be better. It's more broad, but it's getting of this, this thirst to want stuff. Even if you love God, you could love other things more. If you've ever had a conversation with your spouse, of course, I've never had this, but other people, you know, um, do you, you seem to love other things more than me. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't spend time with me. You don't, you, don't, you don't show that you love me. And you say, but of course I do. But there's been no fruit. There's been no proof. There's been, it's been on autopilot. And you both know when that's happening. So we can love God. But he can be on autopilot in the slow lane, cruising along at 60 miles an hour, 
bored to death, while we're really focusing on something else. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, but that is sometimes what our life does consist of. And if it's not stuff, it's other things. So just insert whatever it is that you can think of in your mind right now about you, not about the other guy or your husband or your wife, about you. Life does not consist in that. So he told them this parable to get the point across. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, great harvest, great crop. Things are wonderful. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. That's a nice problem to have. Then he said, ah, this, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, verse 19, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So this is the guy that Jesus says we shouldn't be like. His paradise is to do nothing, just, just to be idle. It's his dream, it's his goal. Um, his happy place, his heaven, is just to have lots of money so he can be free to do nothing. It's like if you've ever had a conversation with people at work about, what would you do if you won the lotto? I'd quit this job and I'd retire and I'd just do nothing. That's really boring. What kind of a life is that? Just do nothing all day. You have no purpose in life. But that's what this guy wants. So it's not a new thing. This guy has won the lotto and he wants to do nothing. That's it. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with, ever, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And that's the parable. It's a simple parable. You don't really need me to explain much about it. What are you what is your life about, really? What is our life about, really? What are you actually living for? And we know what the right answer is, but just forget about the right answer and just think about your life, the fruit that your life has. What are you actually living for? I mean, really living for. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with being blessed with a job that pays well. There's nothing wrong with liking stuff. But what Jesus is getting at is if that thing becomes your, your everything, becomes the center of your life, your, your, your allegiance, your mind, your heart, that's what drives you, it's what excites you. If that thing is put on the throne in your life instead of God, then you're in the same situation of the guy in the parable. I'm going to give an application, an example, um, about two timeless warnings against greed and against covetousness that are not from the Bible, but that most of us are probably familiar with. And if you aren't, this is the perfect season to become familiar with them for the first time or the 100th time. The little book, A Christmas Carol. If you haven't read the little book, if you weren't forced to read it in English class when you were in community college or in high school, you can watch one of the 800,000 movie adaptations. 
The story of Christmas Carol is about a guy who's miserable and just wants more. And he's been driven in to become this twisted, angry, bitter man because he just wants more and more and more. His business partner dies at the very beginning of the book. Jacob Marley is dead. He's dead as a doornail. There's no one, and Scrooge is the guy's name, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's the only one who comes to his business partner's funeral. The only one, because no one else liked the guy. No one else cared about the guy. He's just a banker who no one liked. The only one at the guy's funeral. Scrooge loves money. He won't pay to heat his office beyond this little tiny bit. It's like a guy who won't turn the heat up past 55 because he doesn't want to pay the heating bill and he makes his poor clerk freeze to death and winter inside. He returns to his home, to his cold and dark apartment on Christmas Eve, alone because no one loves him, no one cares about him. All he cares about is his money. And he's visited by the ghost of his business partner who warns him about the dangers of idolatry and gives, says, you have a chance to escape the fate that I have. He's condemned to wander around to look at the misery that he and other people like him have inflicted on the world, but never able to do anything about it, to just feel perpetually remorseful and sorry. And he says to, his, to Scrooge, you'll be visited by three spirits who will show you things that were things that are and things that are going to come if you don't change your ways. And so we're taken on this odyssey of all the things that have happened in the past and the things that are going to happen in the future. We see his loving sister when he's a little kid comes and rescues him from this horrible boarding school where he stays and so he can come home for Christmas. We see when he's a young guy, 20 years old, his heartbroken fiance breaks their engagement off because he's not the guy he used to be, because he's beginning to love money much more than he loves her. She's become a burden. She asks him, if we met right now, would you still want to be engaged to me? And he can't answer the question because he loves money more than he loves her or anything else. The engagement's broken off. He sees what happens after his own death where his own associates don't care anything about him and they're laughing about how they'll only go to his funeral if there's a good lunch waiting for them. His own servants rob his house after he dies and go to a pawnbroker and pawn everything away. And at the end of it, as he sees all of these horrible things, Scrooge vows to change his attitude and to show love and kindness to people, starting with the clerk who he employs. So he awakens and he's a new man. The moral of Dickens' story is the same sort of thing that Jesus is getting at, but shallower, but the same sort of thing. Love other people so you can find joy, because he's a miserable person. The second example, and then we'll return to the parable, is a movie that a lot of you have probably seen, some of you probably haven't, because maybe it's too old at this point. The movie, It's a Wonderful Life. The guy named George Bailey, who's eternally frustrated and disappointed. He lives in the town of Bedford Falls, and he can't wait to leave and go to college and strike out on his own. He's a smart guy, brilliant guy, and he has dreams, and he, he never gets to leave. He never gets to leave this little town where he's stuck. He's supposed to go to college, and his father dies. So he postpones college and sends his younger brother so he can help keep the family business afloat. 
His brother's supposed to come back after four years and take over so he can go to college like he was supposed to have done. His brother comes back from college, surprise, with a fiance and a new job waiting for him somewhere else. So he doesn't get to go. And then the depression strikes. And he's still stuck in Bedford Falls, taking over his father's business, the building and loan. And he never gets to leave. He gets married, he has kids, he seems successful, but he never has a lot of money. And he's just inwardly tortured by what might have been. He hates his job. He hates being forced to carry on this this horrible business that he wasn't interested in taking over in the first place. He's been, he's a nice guy though. He's not angry, but he's just unhappy because he thinks he's meant for so much more. He's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born, but instead he sits there in Bedford Falls where his friends go off and do amazing things, make money, do exotic things, and he's still stuck in Bedford Falls, frittering his life away in a one-horse town where nothing's ever going to happen. And then Clarence the angel, second class, comes to show him what life would be like, all the people whose lives he touched, and what their lives would be like if he weren't there. His mother, his wife, people around the town. And at the end of the movie, George comes to his senses and says that he wants to live again. He he realizes he already had a wonderful life, that he didn't need to look for one that was better. The moral of this movie is that you already have a wonderful life. Both of these are classics because they seize on the same point that Jesus is making, not in, not in the same way, but they seize on the same point that stuff is not your life. The stuff you own, it's not worth your life. The dreams you have, if that's all you have, with nothing else behind them, are never going to be enough. Your hobby isn't more important than your marriage, than your kids. There are other things that are so much more important. As Jesus says, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Both of these stories tackle that concept from different ends. I don't even know if they mean to do it or not. But they take Jesus' principle and they're going at it from different ways. Scrooge is a rich businessman with a heart of ice who just wants more and he's not happy. George is a disappointed working guy who's certain that he was made for so much more than what he has. And neither of them are happy with where they are because they both have holes in their hearts. And both of them have different solutions centered on the here and now and not on anything more. For the Christmas Carol, love others so you can find joy. For George Bailey, don't pine for the stars. You already have a wonderful life right now. Jesus has a third and better option to look upward, to find peace by being rich towards God through Jesus Christ. The other two, Dickens and It's a Wonderful Life, they approximate the answer. They they get kind of close, but even then that's enough to make make our hearts feel warm and we feel happy because they're such beautiful stories of finding what really matters in life. Jesus says the same sort of thing, but in an infinitely deeper way, because he ties meaning to something beyond the here and now. Jesus' answer is to look upward and find peace by being rich towards God through Jesus Christ. What was the rich guy's problem in the parable? Is it a sin to be rich? Is it a sin to have a good crop? Is it a sin to enjoy nice things? 
his sin, and maybe ours, is that he's given himself to something other than God. To something other than God he's, he's just given himself to. He was poor towards God, but rich in stuff, which is what he really worshipped. What Jesus is asking us to really think about is what have we given ourselves to? What is that thing that you spend so much time on? What does it do for you after you're dead? And if that's true, then how important is it really when you compare it to your relationship with God through Jesus Christ? So Jesus is asking, why don't you give yourself to something more? For Dickens, it was love other people and show the true spirit of Christmas. For the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it was the family and the life you already have are good enough. For Jesus, he says, we need to give ourselves, you need to give yourself to the God who loves you and gave himself for your sins to rescue you from this present evil age. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. The problem, there are three, at least three roadblocks to this concept that stuff is not your life. The problem is we already know this in our head, not always in our heart. We already know it, so we think we don't need to hear it, and we tune out, we zone out, we think about lunch, we think about something else, and so we lie to ourselves, and we do it really, really well. It's always someone else. It's never us. So we have to be shaken sometimes out of our days so we re really realize what we've become or where we're going. For Dickens, the three spirits had to come to terrify Scrooge so he would see what he, the miserable person he'd become. For George Bailey, Clarence the angel, second class, had to come to show him things, to make him shake out of it. For Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit, sometimes working through other people in our lives who can speak truth to our lives and tries to get us to see how the things that we spend so much time on often have almost nothing to do with him. From Ecclesiastes again, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we see, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. The same sort of thing he mentioned at the beginning of our service. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Saying, what am I doing all this for? What am I doing all this for? And that makes you think, what am I doing with my life? This guy might believe in God, but God wasn't really his God. His God is stuff. What's your God? Is it God or is it something else and that's the great trap it's hard it's hard to look inward on ourselves and ask ourselves that question i'll show you four pictures that is in all of our futures whoever you are this is in your future four pictures four gravestones this is very old you can't read it very well this is wesley tabor born 1886 died 1953 you have no idea who wesley is and you probably don't care. You don't know what he did, what he coveted. You don't care, and neither does anybody else. 
No one cares unless you happen to be related to him, which would be a terrible coincidence, and I would then feel very bad. But you probably don't care anything about this guy or what happened to him. Then there's Austin, died, struck by a falling tree, killed instantly. 23 years old, 1882, died. Two days before Christmas, 1882, Austin died 139 years ago. Who did he love? What were his plans the day he died? What girl did he like? What was her name? What were his dreams? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. No one even knows who he is. Because like Solomon said, our life is like a vapor. That was James. Solomon said something the same. Our life is very short. And all the things that we spend so much time on, they're gone. They're gone. Like the guy in our parable whose God was idle, the, the money he needed so he can just be idle and do nothing. And all those things are gone one day, and there's nothing left. Then there's Peter. Not our Peter, this Peter. Peter died July 24th, 1952. He died at age 55 during the Truman administration. He was proud of his service in World War I. That's what he chose to put on his gravestone, which is fine. It's good to be proud of your military service. You were part of something infinitely bigger than yourself. He featured that instead of Jesus. You see the cross at the top of the gravestone. No idea what kind of Christian he was, but, he, but what he chose to feature on the stone was his military service. And then the last one I'll show you is Helen, who also had a choice on what, what, what should people know about me? What should people know about me? Out of all the things, she, she could have put mother, which is great. She could have put um, daughter. She could have put wife. She could have put anything she wanted. And those are good things, wholesome things. She chose to put a simple message so that 30, 35 years later, I could just take this picture and I could know what drove her life, what animated her life. She died at age 77 in the middle of Reagan's second term, but all she wanted us to know about her was that she loved Jesus. That doesn't mean that if you have something different on your gravestone, you're an awful person. That's not my point. Jesus is asking us, what have you given yourself to? What will your gravestone say about you? Here lies Fred. He was the best businessman ever. Here lies Sarah. She's an awesome lawyer. What, what, what is your gravestone going to say? That seems to encapsulate what you think is the most important thing about you. Your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. It consists, it should be founded by whether you know, or love, know and love Jesus Christ. Jesus later in the same chapter, as he circled back to reference the parable again, in Luke chapter 12, verses 33 to 34, he said, Provide money bags for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we think about this parable, let it comfort you or warn you, warn us as the Holy Spirit leads. Your life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Please convict our hearts as necessary. Help your Holy Spirit to 
wander through our hearts and minds, help us to think about what's most important in our life, drive us to view you and our relationship with you as the anchor and foundation for everything we are and everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.